TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Progress, obviously, is not a straight line up. It's always like two steps forward, one step back. But it seems that on most fronts, over time, we actually moved forward on specifically on the very, very, very important things. From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 18 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, Stefan Sagmeister talks about why we're feeling so pessimistic about the human prospect when so many things are better than they used to be. We, and by we I mean everybody in this audience, including myself, we just love bad news. Hi, I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. It's a podcast about all the thought that goes into things most people don't even think about. You're going to see stories everywhere. Follow and listen to 99% Invisible wherever you get your podcasts. This conversation took place on December 15th, 2023 at the School of Visual Arts Theater in New York City. It was a presentation of Creative Mornings, a community started by designer Tina Roth-Eisenberg that brings creatives together for breakfasts and talks like this one. Welcome to Creative Mornings. Um, I'm Debbie Millman, and today I am conducting a live episode of Design Matters with one of the most acclaimed designers of our time, Stefan Zagmeister. Stefan was born in Austria but has been based in New York since the early 1990s. Over the course of his illustrious four-decade career, he has created unorthodox, provocative, multi-award-winning designs for campaigns, for album covers, posters, and books that upend the status quo and have taken the design discipline in new directions. He's won two Grammy Awards. How many designers do you know who's won two Grammy Awards? He has received the 2013 AIGA Lifetime Achievement Medal. Solo exhibitions of his work have been mounted all over the world. This is my fifth interview with Stefan. Seems to be endless amounts to talk about. And today we're going to be mostly talking about his new book titled Now is Better. The book combines art, design, history, qualitative analysis, and data sets into beautiful visualizations that are part artwork, part infographic. And in doing so, Stefan presents unexpectedly optimistic statistics about improvements in life expectancy, in education, and the future of humanity. We're going to talk all about that today. Please join me in welcoming to the stage, Stefan Sagmeister. <laughs> Stefan, after five interviews together, I actually discovered something about you in my research about your history that I had previously never come across. Oh my. Is it true you got your first job in design at 15 years old when you went to work at an Austrian youth magazine named Alphorn, which was named after the traditional Alpine musical instrument? That is true. <laughs> but you know, this was a tiny magazine. I started to write for them, not very well, but then the guy who, or the person who used to do the layout for the magazine left, and nobody else wanted to do it, and so I tried, and it turned out that I liked it much better than the writing, and it was a start. Also, I think importantly, because 
the magazine also did some cultural events like music festival or a demonstration against something or and all this stuff then needed graphics needed a poster needed this and that and so considering i already did the layout i did those two which really was important early on because let's say we would do a music festival and i would design the poster not very well uh, one of them i totally ripped off a, this, a local designer not because i was nasty because I knew so little that I didn't know that you couldn't rip off another designer. <laughs> well, imitation is sort of the sincerest <laughs> form of flattery, right? But it was great because when you did the poster, and we, of course, put the posters up ourselves with wheat paste, and then 500 people would show up to that concert. And the only information that they had about it was that poster. So you really saw the effect of the work that you did, which was fantastic and I think a super great learning experience for later on that the stuff that you do really matters. One of my favorite tidbits I found about this experience at 15 was um, you originally found out about the magazine from a sticker on a friend's bicycle and you subsequently joined him and the rest of the magazine staff for an editorial meeting in the boys' basement. Yes. So very official. Yes, oh, totally. And, and I believe it was at this early stage of your career that you discovered your proclivity for using your own handwriting, mostly because most of the headlines you were writing at the time were, or designing, you were using Letraset, but it was used Letraset that had been donated and all the E's would be missing. It just turned out that it was easier to write the whole headline by hand than to painfully, carefully reconstruct all the ease of whatever, <laughs> I think, Cooper Black was a favorite typeface at the time. So, uh, now, does anybody know who Letra said that's, 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 that, that? So that's my next question, yeah. because I was thinking about... How about Cooper Black? <laughs> oh, yeah. So, so, so for those young ones in the audience that might not know, tell, tell them about Letraset. Well, Letraset used to be an extremely important company on the... This was a brand on, as well-known among graphic designers as Adobe. Yeah, you know, this absolutely. Was the Letraset catalog, meaning was the holy grail, was the Bible. And basically it was sheets of rub-down letters that you did headlines with. You couldn't, it was too time-consuming to do body copy, but headlines were ultimately body copy you had to send out for, to be typeset, but headlines you did yourself with letter set. Uh, and every, they were quite expensive. So we, as a magazine, we were so small, we couldn't afford it. That's why we had donated letter set sheets from small advertising agencies from the area. But uh, if you could afford it, you know, you, they had their own custom cabinets with uh, the various typefaces ordered by, you know, alphabetically. And uh, there always was a sheet in between. There was a certain smell to it. I mean, I'm not nostalgic about them. Uh, no, not at all. Because they were a pain in the ass. But, uh, and when they were old, they crackled, you know, or the... Well, when you burnish the letter down, it would have like a bump in the in the plastic sheet. Um, I found one of those files <laughs> on eBay, <laughs> and I and I have it. So the, this yellow boxy yeah. file, and you open it up, and there are all the sheets with the blue paper in between. Exactly. Um, so I have a lot. If you want, with there, yeah, the yeah, ease sure. are there. <laughs> if you if you want to use them. Yeah. Um, you grew up in Austria. You, your parents had a big store in a small town. And you've described it as the place where you could buy work clothes if you wanted quality work clothes, but also your Sunday suit for church. Did you also work in the store? I did not. Uh, well, we helped out for before, like, let's say now, before Christmas on Saturdays. The whole family was in the store, everybody, because everybody had to help out. Uh, because Saturdays before 
the holidays were the busiest time of the year. And, uh, but my parents were full-time, full-blooded salespeople. Not so much my dad. My dad was sort of what was doing in the back, but my mom loved it. Like my mom's dream was to have a store. Was a good reason why she married dad, because he had a store. Uh, and she was, <laughs> she would be the first to say so. Uh, like I had a discussion with her once where I told her, you know that among scientists or artists or educators, they don't think having a store is the best thing. Like, she said, what do you mean? And I said, well, like, you know, my sister is an educator. And I asked her, come over, like, you know, among educators, teachers, they think teaching is the most valuable thing. And my sister agreed. And my mom thought about it for a second. And she said, yeah, but having a story is best. <laughs> I love the idea of thinking that what you do is the best. So many people I know want to be somebody else or want to do something else or have this vision of what they will be in the future. How remarkable that both your mother and your sister are utterly content with what they are and what they do and who they are in the world. But I think my dad was not quite there. I think my dad took over the store from his parents, took over the st- who took over the store from their parents. And there were at least two generations. My granddad, who actually was uh, educated as a sign painter, meaning a graphic designer at the time. Graphic design didn't exist. And he was not allowed to really practice sign painting because he had to take over the store. Mm-hmm. And my but couldn't dad, he do sign painting for the store? Well, you know what? If he did, then those signs didn't survive. But I have a big sign of his hanging in my apartment here on 14th Street. And he was, you know, very conservative at the time. But sign painting also meant you had to carve the wood with the ornaments. I mean, this was, this was real craft. Yeah. Real, this was not something uh, trivial. This is an electricity. Yeah. So I think that my dad allowed everybody to do what they wanted from his own experience. And so my sisters went into education, two of them. Two of my brothers took over the store, but they didn't have to. And they, because they didn't have to, they actually did so successfully. And they now have, I don't think, they probably have 20 stores among them. Is it called Sagmeister's? It is called Sagmeister. So wow. if you go to Western Austria, trip. Uh, it's, uh, it's the store that's the big deal. <laughs> <laughs> what was your relationship like with your parents as you were growing up? I liked very much the whole situation that I was in. I was the youngest of six kids. Uh, Both of my parents worked. So I had a lot of freedom, like specifically as a very young boy. Like my mom didn't know when grade school stopped. So as long as I was home for dinner, it was completely fine. She had no clue if if we had, you know, school at the afternoon or not. So she wasn't a helicopter parent. She was not, which served not so well for my oldest sister, who thought that she was getting too little. It served me fantastically. It, like, it was exactly like I felt incredibly privileged that I didn't have to be home at any time until it was 6.30 when dinner was served. I mean, I think in general, you know, growing up in a small, pretty town, uh, we were... Middle class, possibly in, in the town, probably even upper middle class as far as not money is concerned, but definitely as far as status is concerned. Because the, my, my mom had status. Like if you went through town with my mom, everybody was like, oh, how's our master? Like it was, you know, you couldn't get anywhere. Everybody knew her. So it, it was a good time to, it was a, uh, yeah, no, I definitely won the lottery by, you know, Austria is a very, they of course are complaining like crazy, but in general, specifically seen from the outside now, it's a very well-functioning country with high rates of overall satisfaction. Vienna routinely is voted the most livable city in the world. Like I think they're kind of 
social democratic system is actually one that I specifically with a distance really think works very well. You know, there's relatively high taxes. Uh, people are complaining like crazy, of course. But I think ultimately that seems to be a good system for a society to live together. Your parents encouraged your creativity and you went to art school. They were completely supportive, I think, because of the granddad example who kind of went in that direction but couldn't. So when I showed some interest in there and I had, you know, at that point uh, when I graduated from high school, I had a portfolio of printed pieces. They were not very good, but they were out there. But I still didn't get into the school that I wanted to, the University for Applied Arts, meaning I failed the entry exam. And I went for a year to a small art school to basically train myself to get through the entry exam of the school that I really wanted to. And then the second time around, I, it got in. After university, you got a job in the Hong Kong office of Leo Burnett and then came to New York City to work for the late, great Tibor Kelman at Emin Company. And you specifically came with that ambition, working for Tibor, who in many ways was really at the top of his game at that moment in time. Um, What would you say was the biggest thing you learned in Tibor's stewardship? Well, Tibor had this fantastic knack to give you advice that you could hear. And better than almost anybody I've ever met. Really? Yeah. He had... The way he worded it, the way it was, there was always a put down somehow in there as well. (laughs) But it, like I've seen him once at the Whitney Museum where he designed the exhibit about Keith Haring. And there was a long line of people standing in line to talk to him. And he was holding a little court. And I stood next to him and it was unbelievable. He had something interesting and advice and clear to say to everybody. And so to answer your question, an important one, actually I'll tell you two things. When I went to Hong Kong, I already knew him before. So we had sort of like a loose, friendly relationship. When I went to Hong Kong, he said, I know they're going to pay you a shitload of money. And don't you dare spending that money because you're going to be the whore of the ad agencies for the rest of your life if you do. Excellent advice. Excellent advice. Uh, And I didn't. I saved it. But almost all of my colleagues in Hong Kong are still working for ad agencies. And I'm sure many of them very unhappily. And when I opened the studio after Emman Company, he said... uh, the only thing that's difficult in running a design studio is to figure out how not to grow. Everything else is super easy. And I took that advice to, I I definitely took it then, of course, when I partnered with Jessica, she sort of wanted to grow and we got quite a, we got some growth anyway. But uh, for me, yeah, I think that's the, Three to five people studio is the most pleasant. It just seems that that's a studio size that is able to get maximum quality together with maximum joy. It's interesting. I I was expecting you to say something about how Tibor was able to identify the right kind of people to come work with him. So he did have a small-ish studio, but he hired Alexander Isley and Emily Oberman, and the list goes on of just extraordinary designers still working today. And you, in many ways, have done the same. You had uh, Hjalti Carlson and uh, Jan and um, Matthias Ernstberger, really extraordinary people Jessica. working for you. Yep. Jessica, of course, Jessica. Um How did you know that those people would be the right people to not only help you support your vision, but then go on and do great things on their own? 
in the way that so many people did with Tibor. I mean, I think that Tibor was in a specific situation as in that he really couldn't design. He had an unbelievable vision of what good design is, but he couldn't do it himself. And that freed him, that freed a lot of time up for him. And I think that also installed a lot of confidence in the people who worked for him because they really did it. And so I don't think there ever was a design company like Emmon Company in New York where so many other design companies came out of, I mean, a dozen easily, I think. Well, you now have the four, <laughs> five, yeah, yeah. and, you know, you're still going. But I think that that's not as many as Emmon Company. And I think that had to do with the people being quite autonomous with the design. Let's talk about this brilliant new book. There's so many things that we can talk about. I took a peek at my watch in horror and, and realized, oh my God, we're like halfway through. So fast forward, what you're doing today, you have undisputedly had a career that has influenced others, inspired others, and in many ways defined a sort of benchmark in what design is capable of being able to do in our culture. Um, you've created extraordinary work. You've won hundreds of design awards. You've made several films, mounted countless art exhibits, and published what I believe is now six books. I think your latest is your most conceptually and visually ambitious. It's titled Now is Better, and it is a visual exploration of human progress over the last several centuries. Why this book at this particular moment? Well, there's a, a, a story how it started. I was at the American Academy of, uh, in Rome as a design fellow or as, uh, you know. You won the Rome Prize. <laughs> and it's a great situation. You get a fantastic studio, view all over Rome. And the best thing about it really is that the food is great, <laughs> which means, other than it's good food, but much more importantly is it means that everybody comes for lunch and dinner. And it's 70 people there, archaeologists, filmmakers, artists, architects, designers. And so you have a salon-like thing twice a day. And that in combination with you working in the studio all day is just a fantastic situation. You're sitting next to somebody else all the time. And one evening I was sitting next to a lawyer. He was the husband of a invited artist. And he told me that what we are seeing right now in Poland, in Turkey, in Brazil, really means the end of modern democracy. And I kind of thought it was interesting, didn't really comment much, but looked it up that night. And when I Googled it, when did modern democracy start? How did it develop? It turned out that 200 years ago, there was a single democratic country, the US. A hundred years later, right after World War I, there were 18. And now the UN officially says we have 86 democratic countries, that the UN says these are democratic countries. In 2016, we reached the absolute peak of democracy. It's the first time in the world that more than half of all humanity lives under a democratic system. So my lawyer could not have been more wrong. And that seemed like a very juicy situation to pursue as a communication designer because so many of my friends feel like the lawyer. And when I looked into it, it just seemed that there really are two opposing ways to look at the world. One is from the short term, which is basically how all media looks at it. You know, the media cycle has gotten much, much shorter, allowing things by design 
to be more negative to come through because the shorter the cycle, the more negative the news because negative things happened very quickly, catastrophes and scandals. And there is a completely different way to look at the world, which is long-term, like what I did when I looked it up, when I looked up democracy. Yes, it is true. In the short term, at that point, Poland, Brazil, turned into a non-democratic direction. But even now, five years later, both of those countries are actually turning in the other way again. So from the short term, he was correct. It went a little bit less democratic. But from the long term, 200, he was completely wrong. And when I looked into other directions, that seemed to be true for a lot of directions. Like, So, so let's talk about short term versus long term for a moment. It's very easy. I think a lot of us, maybe everyone in this room, is feeling the intensity of the world right now. And it's very hard in the moment of anything to think long-term. Whenever we're in something, we tend to think, humans tend to think, this is how it's going to be forever. Why is it that we, despite all the positive things that you point out in this book, which are real and documented and empirical, do we all feel like civilization is doomed? Well, I think there's many reasons. One is the amygdala. It's a small part in our brain, like the size, yeah, that basically is designed as a shortcut for negativity. It comes from our prehistoric ancestors that really needed to be kept safe from the lion that would attack. And it didn't really have the same need for the banana that you didn't see because there might be another banana around the corner. So that amygdala was designed by evolution to keep us safe. Now, we developed much faster than evolution originally thought so. And I feel that if we would look as we should look at all the short-term news, but if we would look and spend more time on the long term, we would actually get a much fuller and better informed picture of the world. Despite the many terrible, horrible things happening in the world right now, and for many of us in our personal lives, after reading your book, I've come to realize that almost any data point that's measurable, most things are better than they were 100 years ago. I'm wondering, in an effort to sort of buoy the audience a bit on this Friday morning, can you share some of your favorite statistics and examples from the book? Well, I'll share some lighthearted and some more important ones. Perfect. Lighthearted would be amount of guitars per million people. In the 60s, that's the earliest that they've been counted, 600 per million people. Now, 11,000. There's just a better chance that something comes out of it. And you'll see that in other numbers, like there's so many more people making their living as a musician, even though it's very difficult to do so, than ever before. So Spotify hasn't killed that. Has not killed that, yes. But they have to, you know, hustle, you know, sell T-shirts and whatnot. More importantly, I would say if, we, if I can quickly get the big things out, you know, like everybody in this room, I think, would agree that we would rather be alive than dead. We would rather be, have food than be hungry. We would rather live in a democracy than in a dictatorship. We would rather be healthy than sick. And all of these things actually can be measured. And for all of these things, there are excellent numbers from the United Nations, from the UN, that has me have measured these things over 200 years. And all of these things demonstratively have become better. And so these are kind of like just the basic things. But if I go into detail, if you lived in France 200 years ago, the average calorie count of your diet was the same as it was in Rwanda 200 years later, when Rwanda was the most malnourished country in the world. 
So literally means in Europe 200 years ago, you were very much likely part of the 90% that the UN would now say is extreme poverty. Extreme poverty. Right now, I think that means uh, you have to live your day for under a inflation-adjusted dollar a day. And so 90% of Europe lived in extreme poverty, ruled over by 10% of basically the king and the court. And that was reduced now worldwide to 10%. We went from 90 to 10. It used to be 9% before the pandemic. We did go up to 10, so it got a little bit worse. For full disclosure, democracy also went a little bit worse the last seven years, mostly driven by uh, India. That was the biggest junk that got less democratic. So it's not a... Like, progress, obviously, is not a straight line up. It's always like two steps forward, one step back. Uh, also, when we make progress, we tend to have side effects that we don't really, that we haven't anticipated. Those side effects have to then be taken care of or addressed before we can move forward again. But it seems that on most fronts, over time, we actually moved forward on specifically on the very, very, very important things. Steven Pinker wrote the foreword in your book and states, the nature of journalism combines with our availability bias to guarantee that well-informed readers will be systematically deluded about the state of the world and the way in which it's going. The news is a non-random sample of the worst things happening on Earth at any moment, a collection of lurid anecdotes and images and narratives. And Stefan and I were talking about the role of the news before we got on stage today. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about why we have this sort of availability bias and why... For example, the nightly news always starts with the most catastrophic local event that's occurred that day in that neighborhood or city. It's because we love it. It's, it's not because the, the people who make the news are particularly mean or terrible. It's because we, and by we I mean everybody in this audience, including myself, we just love bad news. Why? Uh, it's juicier. It's true. Look, if I go to Amazon.com and look at the comments on this book, <laughs> there are 16 good ones and one bad one. I, I zone in on the bad one. Ah. That's the one that I really find the juiciest. It's, you know, my former client and, you know, definitely acquaintance David Byrne has this beautiful organization called Reasons, Reasons to, be to Be Cheerful. And of course I follow it. I never read it. <laughs> it's just too boring. It's like all this positive news. When we, when we... I love that you're admitting that, by the way. <laughs> well, when we did the, when we cut, when we edited for two years our film, we had sent the whole crew at significant expense to Austria to interview my many brothers and sisters. And I stayed purposefully out of those interviews because uh, I didn't want them to be stopped of saying anything negative or so. We wrapped it up, went back home, looked at the footage. My brothers and sisters only said positive things about me. It was completely unusable. Not a second was bound up in the film because it was unbelievably boring. Now, if they would have said what a fucking asshole I was as a six-year-old, that would have been so juicy. It would have been so good for the film. And actually, to wrap this little theme up, there is very good, there's a beautiful study that actually Pinker has in his book from Harvard that shows that the film critic who hates the film 
is always seen to be much more intelligent than the film critic who loves the film. Yesterday on LitHub, there was an article that they published the 12 most scathing book reviews of the year. <laughs> juicy. <laughs> it's only juicy unless you know someone whose book is on that list. Oh, yeah. And then it's rather <laughs> horrific. Oh, All of oh, the cleanup yes. that goes into having to buoy that person back up. And despite 450 other good reviews, that one review is going to be one that just haunts this person. Yes. 100%. And that unbelievable article that Tom Wolf wrote about Leonard Bernstein. I saw an interview with Bernstein's wife, and she said this review or this article in New York Magazine was the single worst event of her life, of her entire life. Uh, everybody else got a huge kick out of it because it was very funny. It was very well written. It, you know, made Tom Wolfe famous. But, uh, yeah, there is this thing in us. Uh, it's, uh, I'm not proud of it. It's surprising to me that I would still fall for it, considering I've been working for five years on this book and I'm so aware of the mechanism. But uh, I think it's it's something, yeah, I, it comes from our DNA. It comes from the amygdala. There is, it's hardwired in us. It's not just some psychological surface. Well, I think one interesting thing about at least being aware of it is perhaps we can take it less seriously. Yes, yeah. Um, I do have to admit, I just literally this week did remove the New York Times app from my phone. Really? Yes. <laughs> and I'm, I, I'm still subscribed for it for the weekend, but there I find it is much more of an entertainment value because we read it in bed with breakfast and it's very nice to have the printed New York Times there. But I just removed it uh, from my phone. And I, I really do believe, Eric, when I think about it rationally, Let's take a subject. You know, I followed the New York Times and, let's say, Trump over the last eight years over every daily scandal and silliness that he was saying. I would be much better off having ignored all that and now reading two Trump books by Michael Wolff. Mm. I would be much better informed about how that all developed with some distance, you know, uh, and get a much better idea of how these years were than having followed it every day and having worried about it every day. Because ultimately, even in something as important as our president, I didn't really change anything. Like none of my actions really influenced that world one way or another. Do you think that this amygdala is also lit up by some of the witnessing of nastiness that seems to be so much a part of the daily news and our daily politics and our daily lives? It seems that people, and maybe this is a short-term view and it isn't something that will pan out, but at this moment in time, it seems like people are just a lot ruder to each other. And I think that started with Trump, but I could be wrong about that. I mean, I think it's a mixture also. I think that the rudeness also, of course, comes quite a bit from social media, simply because I'm sure that many people who write terrible things on social media would never tell that to that person in the face. I mean, you just said your partner got death threats. Yeah. Uh, I'm 100% sure that that same person who sent that death threat over social media would never say this at a dinner party in the face. Yeah. And I think in that case, social media is sort of like road rage, you know, but even more, you're even more encapsulated, you're even further away. I Meaning people already behave much worse when they're in a car because they're in their own thing than they would to your face. And I think social media is sort of like you're, it's like triple road rage. 
And beyond that, I don't know if people got ruder in general. Maybe they do. I mean, people on planes definitely seem to be ruder. And smellier. And sm- yeah. There, I actually believe, specifically on airports, I actually think that it has, but, well, I think it has also something to do with the architecture. Mm-hmm. I, for example, feel that if you go to La Guardia now, people are nicer than they used to be five years ago. I really think that that, I mean, it's, check that out and see if you can see something similar. I think that every airport should play on repeat 24-7 Brian Eno's music for airports. You know that uh, Haneda does that. Haneda in, in Tokyo with a formerly New York designer being uh, was creative director there. They actually had Brian over and they are playing music for airports in the airport. Uh, I know that uh, through my partner that in all Polish train stations, they only play Chopin, which is, you know, not bad. Uh, Some long-term lessons to be learned here. I want to talk to you about the artwork. The artwork in the book are compositions. Uh, they include paintings on canvases, that some of which belong to your paternal great-grandparents, uh, Gerhard and Rosalia Sagmeister, who opened and ran the first uh, small antique store in the 1870s. Um, the things that your grandparents didn't sell were stored in the attic of your childhood home, and you used some of those to make some of the work mm-hmm. featured in the exhibits, in the book, on some of the fashion, something that you're wearing, for example. What made you decide to mine your family's attic for this work? Well, once I thought I should do a communication design project about long-term thinking, about the long-term, the next thing was, what media should I do it in? The thing that went out immediately was everything digital, because I can't open my files from 15 years ago. So that was clearly didn't seem to be a good way, both from a long term, as in it doesn't stay around for a long time, but also from a how we don't seem to be concentrating on it for quite a long It's so interesting. I, I wanted to ask you about that. The last time I looked, this book was not available on Kindle. Mm-hmm. Is it mm-hmm. still? It's still not available on Kindle. Will yeah. it ever? I'm not sure. Like I've had, we actually did one book under great efforts to be downloadable also for the iPad. And these books don't do very well because they are so heavy as far as data is concerned. And it takes so long to download it. It's not, a, the system is not great. So I don't think it will, no. I was wondering if you weren't offering this digitally because of the long term and the fact that chances are 100 years from now, those files will be obsolete. Yeah, I think it's both. Uh, So when I looked for media that would work in the long term, 200-year-old paintings seemed to be perfect. And we had some in the attic. I asked my brothers and sisters, yeah, yeah, go ahead, do whatever. And so those were the first, really, and... You know, I cut them up, meaning it was not just that we overpainted. All of these things are, they have gigantic holes in them. New things are set in. What you probably don't see well on the pictures is that the new things are very different in surface than the old things. So the old thing is a canvas that's 200 years old. The new thing are highly polished pieces of wood, many, many times polished and sanded. So they are very, they're highly glossy. They almost look like a piano. And that just seemed conceptually neat to me, you know, that these things were actually physically around when we started to collect the data. And then we did many other very long-term things where we did a mosaic for a bike path created by a company that already worked for the Bavarian king, set into concrete very much for the long term. Or we did uh, tunnels for hospitals in Toronto, or we did a watch 
that is so unmechanical watch that's so crazy expensive that I know just from the expense that it will be repaired and cared for for a long time. It just made sense to do that also for the for the long term. And I have to say, these things, and that's why I really think that they are pieces of design. There is a goal, so meaning like with the paintings, the goal is that somebody that they are exhibited, then shown in media, and then that somebody buys this to hang on their wall as a reminder that, you know, what they just saw on X doesn't really mean the end of the world. And if that, let's say, we had the first exhibition, actually here you see it, this is Thomas Erben in Chelsea. If we would not have sold anything, I said, well, okay, this strategy is not working, let's do something else. But we sold all of the paintings, and I like the process, so I kept going. I also, and I think we talked about this for a second before, I also love this situation that I'm now kind of allowed to really go deep in the subject, not just from a content point of view, but that's too, I get, I'm now much better at getting juicy pieces of data because I have more uh, venues of uh, strategies available, but also from a formal point of view, like, you know, like it's, we're getting better at making them. I have a small team in the Brooklyn Navy Yards uh, for people, but I can try out different things. Oh, maybe the inserts should be transparent. We just did the first one. Oh, maybe the inserts can be 3D that they are CNC'd. Oh, maybe we can even uh, 3D print the inserts if we can get a long-lasting material so that they have there is some surface to them. So it's just, it's a, from that point, it's somewhat a bit different from the usual graphic design office because it allows us to basically keep on one subject for quite a long time and try to make it better. I love that you're using the paintings that you got from your great-grandparents because I also love that you include a statistic in the book that they themselves are a statistical anomaly being among the 15% of the world's population at that time. 15% of the world's population at that time, your great-grandparents were able to read and write. And today, 86% of the world's population is literate. And I mean, that's just a couple of generations, you know? Five of their children still died. You know, crazy to think about, like, the, the worst thing that could happen to parents is your kids dying. And from my great-grandparents, uh, five of their kids died, completely run of the mill for their time, because only 60% of all children reached adulthoods, every, uh, adulthood, everybody else. And this includes, you know, Maria Theresia, the German empress, with the best, you know, this was Austrian... Hungary empire uh, that basically with the best healthcare in the world, half of her children died. It was just what happened. Stefan, you have a section in the book titled The Environment is Not Totally Fucked. And it's really enlightening. Um, and I really encourage, aside from the fact that there's also a piece of art in this book, a limited edition piece of art, the information is so profoundly provocative and enlightening. But I do have this question. How do we align the, thing, the idea that things are getting better and the data that shows that things are in the long term getting better with the data of climate science experts that are telling us that the earth is in almost irreversible danger? Glad you bring that up. Uh, that's definitely terrible. And it's without any doubt, we didn't have a climate problem 100 years ago. We started our climate problem 200 years ago with the Industrial Revolution. All the CO2 that came from the Industrial Revolution is still up there, which also means that if you look at it from a per capita sort of point of view, Europe is the single worst polluter out of all of all parts of the world because they've been doing it the longest. But the, the, the fact that it's a problem is new. And I still think that even in a crazy situation like this, it's beneficial 
to know that we've accomplished quite a bit in other areas that allow us to tackle this new unbelievably giant problem than from a situation of doom of you know doom and gloom i've actually done this talk four weeks ago in Lviv in the ukraine with a lot of caveat like you know like with a lot like i definitely said i never thought i'm going to do a talk about this book in the Ukraine, because as you said in the beginning, if bombs you know, fall on your head, you might not have the space in your brain to listen to this. But it actually went over so incredibly well. We had an hour's worth of discussion afterwards that we are now talking about the Ukrainian version of the book and even bringing the exhibition there. So it, I mean, I was surprised that they actually had that space, but apparently it's possible. But I'm a, a really big believer and I have, it's not just that this is a gut feeling, I actually have evidence for that. And if you look at big social change that happened in the past decades, I think one of the biggest and most incredible is the non-smoking campaigns. You know, unbelievable change. Many countries, including this one, cut the amount of smokers in half, even though those people were all addicted. And when you look at it, how what strategies led to this, it was positive reinforcements and negative warnings. So you had all the awful pictures on your cigarette pack, but you also had the promise of better health. You also had the, the, the possibility for therapy in many countries. Of, of patches and so on. So it really was both the positive and the negative that led to that change. And I really do believe that if we want to tackle the big questions of our time, and climate change is definitely in the very forefront of these questions, we do need the positive and the negative. And the news are clearly doing a fantastic job, both in social media and the official news in delivering the negative. And I think that I and a couple of others like Steven Pinker and uh, there's a fantastic guy at Oxford called Max Roser who has a wonderful uh, site called Our World in Data and some others are trying to give little itsy-bitsy-bits of positive injections in there. I can add to the reason that the anti-cigarette smoking campaigns have done so well. And it also has uh, something in common with seatbelt laws, which have also really improved mortality rates and driving. Children. Children are being educated at a very early age that smoking is bad and that you have to wear a seatbelt. Yeah. And so when older people get into a car and they don't put their seatbelts on, the children in the car will say, you have to put your seatbelt on. Mm-hmm. Which gives me an enormous amount of hope when looking at the data in your book that this next generation behind us, or the generations behind us now, are so much more concerned about the environment, are so much more aware of the environment and the need for more democracy that perhaps we're not fucked, as you as you say. Um, the last thing I want to ask you about is the content of the work in Now is Better. And you stated that since all the content is based on long-term data, it made sense to express it through a medium that can be reasonably expected to stick around for a long time. Talk about the types of paintings that you're using as the foundation of the work. I know that not only are you using the paintings that were found in the attic of your grandparents, of your childhood home, you're also uh, acquiring paintings in auctions and and places like that. So tell us about that. So I buy, uh, I'm a very good customer now from many tiny auction houses in Austria, Switzerland, Germany, Belgium, Holland, a little bit of Northern Italy. I try to stick with... Central Europe, because that's where I come from, that's where I know the things. It's to my advantage that 
18th and 19th century painting is unbelievably out of fashion. So uh, I can afford it. I try to get the best quality that I can from the painting quality. Uh, none of these pieces is truly art historically important. So this is not about destruction. I, for myself, kind of answered the question if somebody would buy my work, including this work, 200 years from now, and it's then for sale at a small auction house in Austria, and somebody in the year 2200 wants to buy it and make a new piece out of it that makes sense for that time, be my guest and more power to you. These paintings come to my place. I take the, the frames off. I photograph it. I put it in my files. I then, in batches, deliver it to our studio, the Brooklyn Navy Yards. They take it off the stretcher. We have a full-time restorer as part of our group. She basically tries to, if it's possible, sometimes these uh, canvases are doubled and tripled up, so you can't really work with it. So we try to get rid of the double and triple canvases. And then I designed the inserts from the composition, the shapes, the, the, the colors. We cut new stretchers out of MDF from that with a computerized machine so it's that we can get very exact shapes. The inserts are many times lacquered and sanded and ultimately covered with resin and then are carefully inserted and then the whole thing needs to be restored because... You know, in handling it, stuff falls off and when you bend it, things come off, so it needs to be restored. But uh, the restorer, she is fantastic, and I can't see which part have been restored and which part have not. But they, uh, when you would see some of them in the process, they look quite dire. So is there a benchmark of where you will allow yourself to destroy a previous work? I assume that you wouldn't do something like that to a Rembrandt. Of course not. But, I, you know, I basically the chances that I'll buy a Rembrandt for my budget at a small auction house is... It's happened. But I think it, it would be so yeah. cool to... I mean, not maybe not a Rembrandt. Yeah. But, I mean... There's something so wonderful about combinatorial creativity just as an idea that it doesn't necessarily have to be an unknown artist that you then collaborate with ultimately in the work that you're making. Well, there's a history of that sort of idea. Like, you know, at one time, Rauschenberg bought a de Kooning drawing and erased it. There is a fantastic piece by Kippenberger who bought a Gerhard Richter painting and made a coffee table out of it and called it Interconti style nastily uh, so uh, I bet people loved it yeah uh, so I'm not sure if I need to contribute to that genre uh, it's been meaning specifically the Kippenberger Richter thing I think is fantastic and I I don't think I could top this but I do have a dream of doing very, very large paintings, which come to auction very rarely, because these very large paintings were very expensive to have been done. Like if you had a portrait to be done, a face portrait was one price, a bust was another, a full portrait, which I you'll see very few full portraits was very expensive. You paid extra for another hand. If one hand was hidden, it was a cheaper, it was a cheaper portrait Hands than a double hand. Hands are difficult to draw. Exactly. They are pain in the ass and, uh, and had to be drawn often by the master of the studio as opposed to an assistant who could do the dress or the trousers. And so they come to these kind of auctions that I'm dealing with less so. 
but I would love to do a big historical painting or so. But most of them have been commissioned by institutions. And of course, the reason these smaller auction houses have so much work is because they come from private houses and, you know, the grandchildren don't want what was in the attic and give it to an auction house. Well, maybe they will now. Who knows? Yes. <laughs> I love what you said about the year 2200. 2,200, so yeah, 2020, 2200, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not good at math, data visualization is not my specialty, I like to look at it, but I don't understand any of it, um, so it's 100 years from now, I'd like to think that another interviewer will be interviewing a designer and an artist about how their work was inspired by an Austrian designer working in the 20th and 21st century who tried to persuade society that we weren't totally doomed in 2023. Well, let's hope for that. Yes. <laughs> Stefan Zagmeister. Thank you, thank you for writing Now is Better. And thank you for being this very special guest on this very special episode of Design Matters at Creative Mornings. Tina Roth Eisenberg, thank you. Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. The interviews are usually recorded at the Masters in Branding program at the School of Visual Arts in New York City, the first and longest running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Emily Wyland.